And welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Stephen Walls, who's the Deputy Chief Energy Officer of the Hawaii State Energy Office. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Marty. Glad to be here. A lot to talk about. I'd like to, to jump in and uh, ask you about the news everybody is focused on, um, the destructive fires that have taken place at, in Maui. Early, it's early on, really, and uh, not a lot of study ha- can be done, but what is your office doing in terms of meshing what can be learned from this experience with the state energy policies looking forward? Well, thank you, Marty. I just want to acknowledge the significant loss of life and property and, and the devastation that people are going through right now. And the state energy office and the state generally is still in response mode, so we're not yet fully pivoted into long-term, medium and long-term planning. And so in response mode, we're still looking into what happened and um, hopefully we'll we'll know more soon and all of that information will be public in, in due time. For the state energy office, the way that we participate in emergency response is under a framework developed and um, implemented by the Federal Energy Management Agency, or FEMA. And as an emergency support function in the National Disaster Response Framework. So that was, there's a lot of buzzwords there, but it's essentially FEMA has this overall framework and the different subject matter experts and different agencies participate. Uh, Energy is 12. So when there is a in activation, state officials go to an emergency operations center. Different specialties get called in at different times. And as the energy office, we are the energy experts. So we participate as emergency support function 12. We have different staff here that rotate through in the immediate leading up to an aftermath of an event. Staff is there 24 seven. Right now we're still staffing the emergency operations center, but it's not a 24 hour shift anymore which is, so some of the staff is catching up on sleep, which is great. And and this overall framework through the EOC provides a mechanism of coordination. And so the federal officials all gather in DC and FEMA headquarters. There's also a regional response center that FEMA, that other federal officials go to. There's the state EOC where state officials go. And then there's the county and municipal level centers where county and municipal officials go. And so that provides a central place where we're all next to each other and can coordinate, communicate effectively and make sure resources get where they need to go. And that's what a lot of the overall work is. So Stephen, let's see if we tease out some themes here, though. Um, Early reports are that some of the fires, at least, may have been started by electric lines that were downed in in very significant winds. And uh, whether that's fully known or the extent that contributed to the problem, put that aside for a second. And let's talk about the state's plan to have 100% renewable energy by 2045. Would that kind of scenario mean that it would be less reliance on these uh, lines that could be sparking and causing fires as the grid gets more distributed? Well, there's a lot of, there are a few different ways that this could 
play out. And, you know, independent of anything that happened in Maui, you know, in to reach the state's goal in 2445, there are a few different pathways. You know, I think it's safe to say that in the last, you know, five to 10 years of that period, so from 2035 and on, what technology makes the most sense, what's available, what's economical is not, is yet to be determined, right? So we don't know exactly what that last phase is going to be. From today, looking out, trying to, you know, predict out that far, there's, um, there's been a strong push of the state across the state to pursue distributed energy resources. And one of the key elements of that is making sure the grid is stable and available. Um, and we can talk more about inverter-based resources. Actually, I, w- I would love to do that. But there's, um, there's still some concern about availability of distributed energy resources, particularly, and even utility-scale resources that are based on the availability of, of wind and, and sun. Uh, right now, the office is going through an exercise of trying to think through and identify what resources the state does have to make sure that the energy system remains available even during strange or extreme weather events. Um, Some of those resources will rely on transmission, which means that the distribution grid is still there. But there's also, on the other end of the extremes, if the technology makes sense to be extremely highly distributed, then you potentially mitigate the need for some transmission. But I haven't seen anything yet that would lead me to believe that each building would be its own island and that there would be no need for distribution lines. So I'm not really sure that the hype, that that hypothetical is where we're going to head. So um, just top top of mind here is, has power been largely restored to Maui or is there still pockets of uh, a lot of blackout? I believe the, the latest figures were in the upper 90s percent restored 90 percent yeah so there's still the long tail is uh not yet fully we haven't chased all of it down yet as you and i chatted in preparation for this podcast you we talked about the availability of geothermal on the big island um hydro and uh possible development of pump storage resources give us a sense of, of the diversity of resources hawaii is looking at yeah, so we've um we have we know there's ge- good geothermal on Big Island. We would like to explore other geothermal resources statewide. So looking at different islands just to see what what resources we have. And in in looking for different resources, we can find fresh water. We can find we might find cold water, we might find hot water. We also might find places to sequester carbon. As you know, uh, as some of our your listeners might know, our goal in 2045 is to achieve net negative emissions economy-wide. And so part of that future could very well be carbon sequestration. And by doing exploration for water resources and identifying what's under the surface, we might also find really good places to put carbon. We also are considering what options we have for long-duration storage. And pump storage hydroelectric power is by far the most common long-duration storage available today. It typically involves some elevation gain and uh, pumping water when there's excess electricity uphill and then using it flowing downhill and when you need it. There are a couple promising areas uh, in across the state where pumped storage hydro would make sense. There's a project being pursued on Kauai right now, uh, but we need to find a couple of other suitable locations that for that long duration storage to make sense. So Hawaii has really led the way 
on rooftop solar. Um, and maybe you have some of the stats you can share with us. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Hawaii is really not a large state, either geographically, population-wise. You're one and a half million ranks, I think, 40th among states. To what extent do you and other energy policy thinkers and we'll get to the fact, or I'll bring it up now, you've worked at DOE, you've worked for NRDC. To what extent is Hawaii a possible testbed of things that will be tried out and modeled for the rest of the country? I think the state has a pretty strong track record in that regard, especially with regard to distributed solar. And hopefully we can continue some of that success. I know when I was at the Department of Energy the energy systems integration facility just got was launched at the National Renewable Energy Lab, and one of their first big results was in Hawaii, uh, in, a, in a cooperative research done between NREL, the utility here, Hawaiian Electric, uh, the main investor-owned utility here, Hawaiian Electric, and um, I believe it was Solar City at the time, looking into this question of how much solar could go onto a distribution feeder and um, would it be safe. Up until that point, the default limit was 10% of daytime minimum load. And uh, the results that were coming back were were en- enabled HECO to have the highest distribution of, distrib- of PV on its feeders compared to daytime minimum load, I think, at, that the world had ever seen at that point. And I think some of them uh, continued to be lead, lead in that regard. What's, what's, the, what's the percentage? I think some of them are well, like, pushing 200% of daytime minimum load now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Whereas the, the default standard back when all of these questions were being asked by, across the state was 10%. So we kind of blew right past that <laughs> and hopefully advanced the conversation nationwide about this the safety of integrating these kinds of resources under the grid. So have new technologies been developed? Has the state have to develop new policies and new tariffs to, to help this grow? Yes, definitely. I think one of the key technologies for this for the state has been um, smart inverters. And, you know, 10 years ago, most in- inverters were one-way communications. They just made, they had whatever distributed resource that was feeding onto the grid follow uh, grid conditions. And so most of your distributed PV across the country is is on what we uh, maybe unfairly refer to as a dumb inverter. And it, it can only really do one thing, and it supplies power within certain parameters to the distribution system. Smart inverters, where Hawaii and California have really taken the lead, um, can do a whole lot more and provide a, a bunch of different grid services to help that enable those distributed resources to add system stability rather than rely on other assets to provide system stability. So, and that which is really important as you start to see the kind of um, penetration levels of distributed PV, in particular here in Hawaii, the inverters need to play really nicely with the existing distribution system controls and, and even provide some visibility to, um, to the utility at central location so that they can, have a re- they can uh, keep the system running in the way that it's supposed to. And having smart inverters with good controls enables the distributed systems to play a key role in keeping the lights on. So let's get back to a second to what you said earlier about negative carbon emissions. And you're achieving that through agricultural practice reforms. It wasn't long ago I was in the Netherlands trying to get to Amsterdam airport and farmers were converging on it with their tractors 
because they were upset with EU energy policies forcing them to be more rational in carbon emissions. How do you hope to get negative emissions from your farm sector in Hawaii? And do you have a model for bringing the farm sector along instead of making enemies of them? Oh, I think there's still some key lessons for us all to learn on how food and energy can have a synergy and and help each other rather than um, be at odds. And the state has some food security goals. As you might know, we import the vast majority of the food that we eat. And there's some uh, momentum here to increase the amount of food production. And that means shifting former plantation land that grew commodity crops like pineapples into making food for local consumption. And sometimes there's a perceived perceived tension between using land for agricultural purposes and using land for energy, whether it's biofuels or putting wind farm up or, or solar farm. Uh, one of the things, one of our key questions that's before us right now is trying to think through how can renewable resources and agricultural production play really nicely on the same parcel of land. And we have a, there's a pilot project that the, um, why Agricultural Research Center is is kind of wrapping up, showing how different crops performed on an existing solar farm built to spec without any sort of consideration for agricultural production, just, you know, what works with that sort of setup. And so the next set of questions is going to be, are there slight modifications we can make to add to PV uh, racking and, and, and specs and height and so on in order for agricultural production to have a stronger role in the use of the parcel so that we get a twofer out of every piece of good agricultural land. We get both food production and PV. So if I get this right, you will have a solar farm with PV and interspaced with that, you'll have crops growing? That's the that's the goal, yes. And we've seen a pilot do that pretty successfully with some crops um, just down the road from where I am now. What kind of crops? They had some um, something called tea leaves, so that's T-I. So that makes a, it makes tea, not... T-E-A, but T-I. Um, they did, the kale looked really good. They were starting to put mushrooms under log, mushroom logs under the panels because it's shaded all day and it stays nice and moist down there. They had put it, the kale looked really good. Like I wanted to take some of the kale home and make a salad with it. Uh, they put in some sweet potatoes and it, it'll be interesting, how, interesting to see how the sweet potatoes go because uh, for the farmers out there, you, when you dig up the sweet potatoes, it's, it's hard to do if you can't get your tractor uh through the through the row so that was going to be one of i think one of the more interesting crops that we that see the results from the experiment so is this potentially large-scale agriculture or is it just like a kitchen garden uh it I, the, the goal is to have it be large scale i mean it won't be like a large midwestern farm with huge agricultural equipment you know but it would still be a large commercial enterprise that's the goal and um, one of the key questions is how to space the racking and the height of those systems in order to accommodate both the um, PV, the, the cost to the solar farm and the ability of the farm to have mechanized elements of its production. So we're trying to figure out that balance right now, and hopefully it'll make a contribution to agrivoltaics going forward. And I think for the state, Seeing synergy between food security and energy security goals, I think, is definitely important, and hopefully we get some good results out of this project. So so I think we just coined a new word, at least I have not heard it before, agrivoltaics. Oh, it's, I can't claim credit for that one, unfortunately. <laughs> 
I want to ask you a little bit about the ambition of being 100% renewable by 2045. A lot of states have something like that on the books, and a lot of states are working in that direction. And as you alluded to earlier, Hawaii has had early successes in, in getting major penetration of rooftop solar out into the cities. And uh, But one recent stat I saw that while you want to be 100% by 2045, in one recent year, about 29% of the state's energy production was considered renewable. Is that still accurate? Is it about a third? Yeah, if you look statewide, it's about a third. Um, each island has its own energy system. There are no inter-island cables. So the some islands like Kauai are much higher. Um, but for the if you look statewide, the average is always um, heavily weighted towards the proportion of renewables where most of the people are. So if a state like Hawaii, which has been aggressively on this track for a couple of decades, is still at 29, 30%, how do you, in a mere two decades, how do you get to 100%? What's your vision of how to get that kind of scale? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is the, that's the million dollar question, right? I think, you know, we're encouraged by a few things. One, the Hawaii is over half of its energy supplied is, is renewable. And if they, are able to complete their pump storage hydro project, then they'll be pushing over 70 and they'll still have, you know, the rest of the time to figure out what else they should do. You know, but a a big piece of closing the gap is finding good resources. You know, there's only so much land for solar. There's only so much land for wind. What else can we bring to the table? You know, there there are offshore resources that have, you know, there's a a mixed bag there, but we could potentially do some some biofuels, um, but I, I think one of the big questions that we should answer is where there where there are good water resources and uh, potentially some places to sequester carbon. So as you you know, for, to get to net negative, we could we want to be as efficient as possible. We want to be as re- switch as much as we can to renewable electricity and renewable fuels. But there is there there will be some very hard to decarbonize elements, and we're gonna. Sequestration could be a, 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 an important strategy to reaching that negative. And so if we can understand better what, what our resources are with regard to, to water, geothermal, and, and carbon sequestration, we could end up getting some really good news, and, uh, and then it puts 100% well within reach. So the good news will be on the sequestration front, or where would it be? Potentially, it could also be geothermal. So on the sequestration, uh, it's been kicked around by DOE and others for a long time now. Is implicit in that that you will continue to burn natural gas and coal as some percentage of your need, and, and that's how you will deal with the carbon? Well, our, our last coal plant shut down. Um, so we are all, um, it's mostly low sulfur fuel oil. So it, we and we do not currently have natural gas for power supply, but there is natural gas supplied for, for building consumption and some industrial use. Um, if we, in order to, you know, by the, t- in, into the 2040s, there might not be a good alternative to, com- to com- fuel combustion for some things. Um, and if, you know, we can't decarbonize everything, then we'll have to sequester. Okay. And uh, we haven't talked really about the electrification of transport and other aspects of society. You talked about several islands. We haven't talked about Oahu, which is your main, most populated island, is it not? And what's the energy picture there? Yes, Oahu is our most populated island. And 
the, uh, there's a lot of distributed solar here. There's some, some utility scale solar and some, uh, utility scale wind, but the, the, this was where the coal plant was and it recently shut down and is being replaced by a 185 megawatt four hour battery storage facility that is capable of doing, providing grid services, including black start. And that's, uh, Slated to be fully operational by the end of the year. The central stations, the thermal generation is low sulfur, low sulfur, sulfur fuel oil. Okay. And uh, what about water resources? You said you were looking at developing water resources. How does that affect the energy picture? Well, we could find um, some hot water, which would be good for geothermal. We could find water for biofuels. We could also find um, good wheat. It's less important. It's less impact. Uh, groundwater has less of a role, but it could be a, a piece of pump storage hydro as well. Okay. Looking to the future, I mean, you've looked at energy policy in the United States. Now you're looking at it up close in Hawaii. Are you optimistic that there's going to be a major transformation by 2045? And uh, will Hawaii be in the front ranks of, of those achieving it? Yes, I, I, to both questions, both parts of the question. I think Hawaii set the country's most ambitious goal back in 2008 uh, in, in setting a 70% clean energy target. Again, a few years ago, we were the first state to set a 100% net negative goal by 2045. We've led with the use of the reliance on distributed energy, renewable resources, and we'll continue to do that and lead the be at one of the leading voices in smart inverters and inverter-based resources and providing grid services there. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to do. There's no question about that. I, I th but if, you know, looking back to when the state started on this journey to where we are now, you know, there are a lot of big questions then around the safety of certain renewable resources, their ability to, their the risk that they'll destabilize the grid and the, the cost increases that you would see. And all of those questions have been answered in favor of renewable. And I think that was, that's been, that track record is pretty surprising. You know, if we, if we stay on that trajectory, then I, I, I am confident that we'll get to 2045, but there's still a lot of work to go, uh, between where we are now and then. I think one of the key things that we're going to be banking on is continued technology change and, and cost improvements. DOE has a, a series of what they are calling earth shots and long duration storage, hydrogen use, um, electric, lithium-ion batteries or grid storage, and a, and a handful of others really push, trying to push the envelope on seeing better technology at a lower cost that's going to enable energy transitions like the one Hawaii is undertaking right now to actually be successful by 2045. Great. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. It was great to be here, Marty. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Stephen Walls, Deputy Chief Energy Officer of Hawaii State Energy Office. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, a production of the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Electricity. We regularly convene conversations with thought leaders in the fast-changing electric sector in America and around the world. Please send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about this series now in its fourth year, or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov.
Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.